All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, if you're new to Remnant, welcome, man. I just hope I get a chance to meet you before you leave today. I'll be out in the lobby after the service, and uh, we can talk about uh, almost anything you want to talk about. You, know, you can learn about our church. I, um, I've been in the series. We've been 17 weeks now into this series that's called What in the World's Going On? And I think that's the question everybody asks about 10 times a day. And we've been talking about how God has been grooming this world for the arrival of the Antichrist. And we've been studying exactly what's going on spiritually as well as physically in our world. And we're all the way to Revelation chapter seven now. Um, and I just sort of wanna walk us through you know, if, I keep saying that if you're going to understand Revelation, you have to read the other 65 books of the Bible first, because what happens is Revelation is sort of the last chapter. And often when you read Revelation, you find yourself going back to other parts of the Bible and you spend a lot of time relearning what you learned before. Now we are, um, we just finished, if you remember last week, we finished the seven seal, the seven seal judgments, the, the scroll that, that, Daniel saw that made him pass out hasn't been read yet, but the seals on it have been broken by the Lamb of God, by Jesus. And so we, we, have, we are in sort of that point in the tribulation where we're very close to mid-trib. Okay, remember the tribulation is a seven-year period. We're about three and a half years in. The Antichrist is about to turn into the demon that he is. He's going to reveal himself to the world. We're right about mid-trib when this scroll gets open and what are called the trumpet judgments begin to uh, be revealed. Now, when I get to chapter seven of Revelation, it's interesting to me because I almost always think of the Brad Boyette Swimming Academy. When I was five years old, okay, I um, began learning how to swim and I didn't just learn how to swim in a pool, I went to the Brad Boyer Swimming Academy. Now that may not mean a lot to you, but to a five-year-old, this is a huge deal. What happened was you went to the Brad Boyer Seal and, and Academy and when you graduated, then you got this bright yellow patch that went on each side of your Speedo. And what that said was you have the Brad Boyer stamp of approval. You are certified to swim anywhere you want. And so when you went to the big pool where all the diving boards were, if you had that stamp on your, on your side, you could go into the deep end. You could go off the diving boards. Well, for a five-year-old or six-year-old, that was huge because I could just walk by with my seal and, and it got me in everywhere. So I was a Brad Boyer graduate at the age of like five. And I swam competitively on the Brad Boyer swim team for five-year-olds. I mean, we probably swam like this. But one day when I was about six, maybe seven, I was ready to come out of the locker room, ready to go to swimming class, and I realized I'm in a Speedo. And I never swam competitively again. I walked right back out, put my clothes on, and determined I would never go out in public like that again, which actually didn't happen, but that's another story. In any event, there was something about having that stamp, that seal, that, that approval by Brad Boyer that, that got me to various places um, that, that I, it was probably the first thing I can remember that was a reward for something I've done. Now for reasons, and that's totally random by the way, for reasons known only to God, he decided one day to bless Abraham. And he decided he was going to have a special relationship with them. Abraham, it wasn't something that Brad, I mean, that, uh, it was something that God decided um, randomly. He chose the Israelites. He said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And honestly, he basically said, there's not a thing you can do about it. I've chosen you. You are the chosen People, his descendants of Abraham were Isaac and Jacob. And then Jacob's kids formed the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, now that's going to come into play when we get into Revelation chapter 7. There are 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob had two wives, which complicates things. He had a couple maids, which complicates it even further. But eventually there are somewhere between 12 and 14 tribes of Israel. 
And you can say, well, I've always heard there's 12. Well, that's true. But sometimes scripturally, they take the Levites, which were the priests that were distributed across the entire part of the Jewish nation, and they didn't consider them a separate tribe. Other times they recognized Joseph. Other times in the Bible, they recognized his two descendants, Manasseh and Ephraim. In any event, these are the tribes of Israel, 12 of them. And God said, I'm going to, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your children. He not only had a special relationship with the Jewish people, but he had a unilateral covenant with them. Now we've talked about covenants in the past, a unilateral covenant by God. What does that mean? That means God says, I'm going to do this and nothing you can do can keep me from doing it. No matter what you do. No matter how much you try not to do it, I'm going to do it through you. I'm making a unilateral covenant. Okay, you don't have to do anything. I'm doing it. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your fathers to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now notice, God put no condition on this. Also notice the number of times it says, I will. I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who who don't honor you. And through you, all the world's going to be blessed no matter what you do. This is going to happen. God has spoken. Later on, Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise and walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Notice again, God is giving. Abraham's not doing anything. He's just following. Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God's saying there's a time when your family... Is going to be, he didn't say it in here, but we know it's Egypt. It's going to Egypt. They're going to be in bondage for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And after that, they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now let me just talk about that for a minute. I've said from the very beginning that everything that happens in our world is under the control and reign of sovereign God. He's telling Abraham, I'm going to send your children to a promised land, but we can't go yet. Why? Because the Amicalites haven't rung up enough sins yet for me to justly punish them the way we're going to punish them. Think about that for a minute. God's saying, look, we can't go. You're going to be buried in an old age. It's going to take four generations for the Amicalites or the Amorites to reach the level of sin where the judgment I'm bringing forth on them is appropriate and just. Think about that for a minute. God, why are we in slavery for 400 years? Because the Amicalites haven't sinned enough yet. Think about that. You know, we ask God a lot of times, why is this happening to me? And I think if we got the answer, we go, what? What? What does what's going through me have to do with somebody four generations from now? Everything. See, that's what we don't realize as believers and as people. What you do today has generational impact. The choices you make will decide the fate in many ways and the life of your great-great-grandchildren. They are a product of the decisions that you make. When God looks at the world and he, you know, he, we look at him and we go, God, fix this situation in this moment. And I think a lot of times he'd say, you know what, we have to go through this because four generations from now, this is going to happen. This is what he does here. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now we've talked in the past about in a covenant, you walk through the blood of the sacrificed animal. What this is happening is God himself is walking through and making his covenant. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Here's what he says. To your offspring, I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Catamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, just know the ites. In the Bible, if you see ites, they are pagan. Okay, they were part of the land. They were there in the land before God brought the Jewish people. They are pagans. They're worshiping false gods. They built up their sin to the level that God's judgment is to wipe them out. Okay, we've talked about the wrath of God. We've talked about understanding his justice. We've talked about how we get uncomfortable when he wipes out people. But the reality is we underestimate his holiness and the, the, the importance of the sin that happens to, that we have to deal with. Now this is the Abrahamic covenant. It's unilateral, it's non-conditional. God has said it, it's going to happen. He's gonna make it happen no matter what these 12 tribes do. That's essentially the Old Testament. God tries to show his love, the 12 tribes swear to him they're gonna do well, they turn from him, he saves a remnant, he starts over again, he keeps his side of the bargain even though the 12 tribes don't, okay? No matter what the Jewish people do, no matter what the conditions of their heart, whether they follow God or not, he has made a promise. It is unilateral and unconditional. And the repetitive story of the Bible is that God blesses them. They reject him. He sends judgment. He sends prophets. They repent. They commit to follow him. Then very soon the next generation often rejects him. They intermarry. They chase other gods. He sends prophets to warn them. They repent, they commit to following him again, and it repeats over and over and over through the Old Testament. Each time God saves a remnant, a subset, a group that he has set aside to use to start over. While others are chasing after gods, he saves a remnant whose hearts are truly his. It's through this process that God keeps his promise to Abraham and brings about another covenant that he's gonna make with King David. First Chronicles 17, 11. Talking to David. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom, the Messiah. He'll build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from those who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is the Davidic covenant. Through David, one will come who will be an eternal leader of the Jewish people, the promised Messiah, the one that we know as Jesus. So God made these covenants. Notice both of them are unilateral and unconditional. I keep saying that because, for example, the biggest covenant we make other than our relationship with Jesus is marriage. That's, a, that's not unilateral. It's not unconditional. It's two people agreeing to be in a covenant and staying there. This is not that. This is God saying, I'm doing this no matter what. But even though he made promises to the Jewish people, their sins still had to be punished. He wasn't giving them a free ride. They have to suffer the consequences of chasing other gods. And as they entered the promised land, God told them to destroy everyone who was there and not to intermingle, not to intermarry, because God knew they'd be lured into chasing false gods if they married pagans. Unfortunately, they didn't obey God. They looked at the other nations and saw that all the other nations had a king. So they decided that rather than accept God as their king, they demanded God give them a king. They chose Saul. It didn't work out very well. He was Looney Tunes. He looked like a king, but his heart was far from God. God replaced him with God's choice of a king, David. 
a man after his own heart who ruled as a king and foreshadowed the peace and prosperity of the kingdom that would come when the Messiah comes. Unfortunately, David's son Solomon started off strong but faltered. And he turned from God, he married a foreigner, he began to chase false gods. From that point on, the kingdom is divided. They essentially split north and south. The northern kingdom consisted of ten tribes called Israel. The southern kingdom consisted of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. They made up the southern kingdom. Two different kingdoms, two different capitals, two different ways of worshiping God. So during the period of the kings, each of these two nations lived separately. The northern kingdom not only embraced local gods, but they stopped coming to the temple in Jerusalem for the feasts. And instead, they set up their own temple in an area that we call Samaria. They interbred with people there. They were seen by the southern kingdom as half-breeds who'd ruined the Jewish line. Okay, thus the Samaritan woman. Remember, she asked Jesus, are we to worship in Jerusalem or up here on this hill? Okay, that was her question. The disobedience of the northern kingdom was punished by God when he allowed the Assyrians to invade them and conquer them in 722 BC. They dispersed the 10 tribes of Israel throughout the world. You see, one of the things we've talked about this before, but the Assyrians and Babylonians were the two big countries, Assyrians in 700, Babylonians in 500. They had two different ideas. The Assyrians, when they invaded, they took all the captives and they dispersed them around the world. Why did they do that? So they couldn't reform an army against them. Okay, so part of the Assyrians was, we're going to take you from your native land of Texas and we're going to send you to New York or we're going to send you to somewhere else. Okay, the Babylonians had a different idea. They said, we're going to take the very best of what you have. We're going to take it to Babylon and we're going to use it and basically learn from the best you have. That's why Daniel and others went to Babylon and taught and began to be scholars, okay? So two different ideas, but when the Assyrians invaded the north, these 10 tribes that were there got intermingled with the world and we don't know where they are. We have no idea. Some call them the lost tribes of Israel. They aren't lost. God knows who they are and where they are. And we're gonna see in the end times, he's gonna bring that group back together. While those in the south, the tribe of Judah, they hated the Samaritans. But they turned away from God as well. The consequence of that sin was God allowed the Babylonians to take over the south in 605 BC. Now, I know you're getting a history lesson, but trust me, it's all going to come together. The Babylonians took the best and brightest of the tribe of Judah into captivity. That's where we get the story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Daniel and eventually Nehemiah. During this time, the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel lived and spoke for God. Now, eventually, God would allow the tribe of Judah to return back to Jerusalem and rebuild it under the leadership of Nehemiah. That's the event that starts the 70-week clock that Daniel talked about the end times. The return to build the temple. It is through the Judah tribe that we get the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and 500 years later, the arrival of Jesus. Okay, So David was of Judah. Judah was not one of the lost tribes. So we know Jesus came through those tribes. So the people that we know today who are Jewish, the people who you can trace their Jewish lines back, are all from the tribe of Judah. Okay, So what we see as Jewish now are people from the tribe of Judah centuries later. The other descendants aren't known to us. They've been dispersed. They could be in this room. We don't know. God knows. We don't know. The 70-week prophecy that we've been speaking of stated there would be 69 sevens from the time they rebuilt the temple until the Messiah would present himself in Jerusalem and at Passover 483 years later to the day Jesus shows up at the temple to present himself as the Passover lamb. Unfortunately, the Jewish people rejected their Messiah and crucified him. That was the problem. 
He presented himself on the day he was supposed to. He came as the Messiah was to come, and yet the Jewish people who should have been the first to recognize him did not recognize him, and in fact rejected him and crucified him. Acts 13, 26, Paul speaking. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilling them by condemning them. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him crucified or executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who'd come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. Acts 13, 44, the next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken of by Paul. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it is necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. This ushers in the Gentile period. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Jewish people rejected Jesus. He was crucified. And as a result of that, we enter what's called the Gentile period. A time unknown to us how long where God is bringing the message to the Gentiles to us. Now remember, the 70-week prophecy to Daniel was about the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. Here it is, Daniel 9:24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for the iniquity, to bring everything in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. You want to know what Revelation is all about? It's about those things. Notice that the decree is about your people and your holy city. This is a prophecy about restoring the Jewish people back to God. Yes, they were primarily responsible for crucifying him, but God hasn't walked away from them. In fact, the entire story of the New Testament is God is going to one day close the Gentile period and reveal himself as Messiah to the Jewish people. And they will turn and come back to him. And that's where we are in Revelation. At the end of 70 weeks, at the end of Revelation, all the sins of the Jewish nation will be forgiven. Their relationship with God will be restored and the most holy place will be reestablished. You will be my people, he says, and I'll be your God. But the last week of that prophecy, the last seven years is delayed. God pushed the pause button. As soon as the Jewish people rejected Jesus, he hit pause and the clock stopped ticking until a moment in the future when the clock will start again. The era we're living on right now is in this sort of unspecified time where the world's prophetic clock has been paused, waiting for all the Gentiles to finally accept Jesus. The church age will end with the rapture of the church, okay, which I told you is the next thing on the prophetic clock. It could happen at any moment. The rapture of the church is the next major event that happens. And when that happens, the clock starts ticking again for the last seven years. At that point, everything is focused on the Jewish people. This is something we have to understand. Once we're raptured, once we're gone, all the Gentiles who believe in Jesus have been called back to heaven as the bride of Christ to be married to Christ. Once that happens, everything that happens from then on out is to try to get the Jewish people to come back to God and to recognize Jesus as Messiah. It is God keeping his covenant Okay. Now, once the Antichrist, who gets revealed, signs a covenant with Israel, the, 77, well, the seventh year starts until God defeats him at Armageddon. Now, the 70th week, the last seven years, we know as the tribulation. The last three and a half of those are the great tribulation. In the end, Jesus will have restored all the Gentiles and all the Jewish people who accept him as Savior. 
It's important to understand the Great Tribulation and the Tribulation. The first three and a half years, the world will be experiencing a peace that is brought by the Antichrist, who will present himself as a false messiah. He'll bring peace to the world. We've talked about this. And for three and a half years, he will look like God's gift to mankind. Okay? People will love him. He will be adored by the masses. He'll bring peace to the world. He'll get everybody to sort of fall into his camp if they're not aware of what's happening. Okay? He'll look to the Jewish people like a Messiah. He brought peace to the Middle East. He did all the things we hoped would happen for three and a half years. Now what happens during those three and a half years, there's world peace, but the seals began to get opened. And we've seen what the seven seals do. The tribulation has started. Things are beginning to happen in the world. Yes, there's peace. Yes, the Antichrist says he's got answers for it, uh, but the world is falling under one economy, one global military, one mind think, one religion, which will be humanism. It all falls into and under the Antichrist. Once the seventh seal has been broken and read, there is a moment of awe in heaven that we'll get to. It's basically everybody taking a deep breath until the scroll is open and the trumpet starts to blow. Now, the tribulation starts with the seals and judgments. Now remember the sixth seal, the last one we talked about, there was a great earthquake, the sky turned dark, the stars seemed to fall from the sky, the moon turned blood red, the sun darkened every island, every mountain was moved. Remember the kings of the earth hid in the caves and begged the caves to fall on them and kill them so they could survive the wrath of God, which tells you they couldn't kill themselves. See, a lot of people think, well, if, if, if I'm not a believer and the end times get too bad, I'll just take myself out. Probably not. You can't escape the judgment of God. And then in the middle of total chaos, Revelation 7.1, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. They've just had a horrific, cataclysmic, natural disaster, and now an eerie calm. Nothing's happening. Think about that. Nothing is happening. Revelation 7:2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Okay. Now we've seen God place his protective seal on people before. Remember I told you what you see in Revelation has happened in other books of the Bible. Ezekiel 9. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his wrist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem. And put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are being committed in it. God is about to pass judgment on Jerusalem and he tells Ezekiel, go seal the people who love me and who are offended by what's happening in the world. You see, when God determines to seal somebody, he's making a unilateral a promise, just like the covenant that he gave Abraham and David. When God seals someone, he puts his stamp on them and promises that in one day in the future, they will be redeemed. The seal is unconditional and unilateral by God. You can't lose your salvation once you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself was sealed by the Father. John 6, 27. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So now before the trumpet judgment, God seals another group of people, Jewish people, who represent the remnant 
who still believe or could believe that Jesus is the Messiah and there are people from all 12 tribes across the world. What scriptures means is that while we don't know what happened to the 10 lost tribes or the northern tribes, when the Assyrians disperse them, God knows exactly who they are and where they are, and he will seal those that he has preselected as a remnant. In fact, in this room, we could have descendants of the 10 tribes of Israel. We just don't know. Most of them went up into Europe. The Europeans came over here. It's hard to know. But we have a list. 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, totaling 144,000. Who are these people? It's a good question. You see, Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, it's us. It's interesting if you think about it. They say 144,000 people are going to get into heaven. Wow. That's a small number over the long history of mankind. And the only way you get into heaven is to bring other people into heaven. You have to earn it. But if only 144,000 are getting in and you want to be one of them, why would you go ring doorbells to get somebody else to take your place? I, I don't get it. <laughs> the Jehovah's Witnesses once said that 144,000 is their entire number of their church and then they had more followers than that. So now only a select group get to go to heaven. Most Bible scholars regard the 144,000 as converted Jews who are identified as Israelites in some manner by God. We get some insight. They are called children of Israel in 7.4, Revelation 7.4. Their tribal affiliation is specific, the 12 tribes of Israel. They seem to be protected and triumphant through the period of God's wrath. Remember, we're halfway through the tribulation. These people are still there. They meet with Jesus at Mount Zion when he returns. When Jesus steps back onto earth, these 144,000 will be there to greet him. They are celibate. We'll learn that in Revelation 14. They are the beginning of the greater harvest that we're going to learn about in 14. And they're marked with integrity and faithfulness. That's who these people are. 144,000 people linked back to a Jewish tribe, 12,000 from each tribe. All have been set apart by God. All have been pure by God. They are celibate. They're part of a greater Jewish harvest. They are the first fruit of the Jewish harvest that comes at end times. Now, most people believe that these 144,000 are sealed for the purpose of sharing the gospel during the, the tribulation. Okay. Remember the number 12 in the Bible, along with number 3 and number 7, represent completion. The complete number of each tribe. Now in Exodus 4, God says that Israel, the Jewish people, are his firstborn son. It's not a title, it's a position. Okay, we call a firstborn son the first one that comes out, right? Firstborn son. But in Jewish culture, it's a title, not a position. In other words, you could be the second or third son and be the firstborn son. The one that to that person is given all authority, all oversight of the family, the inheritance, all those kind of things. Firstborn really didn't have a lot to do with birth order, had a lot to do with what the father decided about who should lead the family in the future generations. Okay? That's why the whole thing about trade me your birthright. Okay? It's important to understand that it's not just a arrive first, it's actually a role. Then look what Paul says to the Romans. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. It is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now remember, what he's saying here is God's going to keep his covenant. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. But the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, the only reason you're receiving mercy, Gentile, is because the Jewish people were disobedient. 
You see, had they been obedient, the pause wouldn't have happened. Long story. Okay, so then he says, um, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he can have mercy on all. In other words, the Jewish people aren't any better or worse than the Gentiles. All of us have turned from God. All of us have rejected God. It gives God a chance to show his mercy to everyone. But what Paul's trying to say to them is God didn't give up on the Jewish people. Yes, right now they're persecuting you. Yes, right now they're running you out of synagogues. But these sins, like your sins, will one day come to forgiveness and they will be restored as the covenant promise of God to Abraham. That's what Revelation is about. Jewish people coming to the face of their sins, being restored by God. He will come for the nation of Israel. He'll keep his promise. It's best to see the 144,000, I think, as Jewish people who come to faith in Jesus. They are the first fruit of a greater Jewish harvest. And they become the teachers and those who have been sealed to keep the message pure to teach the Jewish people who will turn back to Christ at the end of the Revelation. Okay, so, Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. By the way, those characteristics, a complete list of seven. Okay. The diversity here is the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. All people, all nations, all tongues from all over the world, they're all going to be at the throne. Jesus said it this way, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. John knew they came from different nations, different tribes, different peoples, different tongues. He knew there'd be differences among people in heaven culturally, just as, they're on, just as they are on earth. We will all not be the same. We'll all be individuals, but we'll have unique characteristics. And the one thing we have in common, we've all surrendered to Jesus as Messiah. Palm branches were the emblems of victory. It shows a great multitude of people celebrating an incredible victory. Having an emblem of righteousness, that's the white robes. Worshiping God for salvation. They recognize that God is the source of salvation and no one else. Salvation is not something we earn. It's something God gives to us in his mercy and grace. Sometimes believers on earth take salvation almost for granted. That ain't true of the people in front of the throne in the multitude of heaven. All beings, the others in heaven, are compelled to join their voices in praise. Think about that for a minute. The greatest multitude you've ever seen praising Jesus. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, those saved in the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, are saved just like everybody else by the blood of the Lamb. How are you saved? By the blood of the Lamb. And even if they are martyred, their martyrdom does not save them. Only the work of Jesus can cleanse them and save them. Notice how many there are. The presence of so many tribulation saints is a statement of God's grace and mercy. Even in a time of judgment on the earth, many are saved. Because the great multitude mentioned right after the 144,000 are the work of those 144,000. In other words, the multitude that is in front of the crown that's praising God, they are the results of the first fruit of the 144,000. See, we tend to think that after the Antichrist reveals himself that everything just goes downhill from there. There are a lot of people 
who find their salvation in the last half of the tribulation. It's the point of the tribulation. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne. Remember we saw the picture of the lamb walking among the lampstands will be their shepherd. He'll guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think about heaven just for a minute. We always picture heaven as this cloud with peaceful, maybe some butterflies and birds. and It's going to be noisy. People are praising God. Millions of people are praising God. Think about how eerie this would be. Praising, singing, worshiping. There are angels there, 24 elders on the throne, countless tens of 10,000 angels praising God, a multitude of martyrs too numerous to count, praising God and crying out, salvation belongs to the Lamb. And then in heaven, just as it was happening on earth, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Have you ever sat silent for half an hour? That's a really long time. It's as if all of creation, both in heaven and on earth, held their breaths for what was about to come. What's about to come? The Antichrist is about to reveal who he really is. And the great tribulation is about to start. It demonstrates a sober, awestruck silence at the judgments to come. The seals are off, the scroll's about to be opened. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden offer before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Okay? Silence broken by essentially thunder, rumblings, earthquake, flashes of lightning, and fire being thrown from heaven. Then I saw this... In the Old Testament, trumpets sounded the alarm for wars. They were supposed to throw the enemy into a panic. That's what God's trumpets are going to do. They're signifying to the world, God's not finished yet. He's still coming. These seven trumpets will sound as God's battle alarm during the Great Tribulation. Incense is symbolic of the prayers of the people rising up to God. One job of the priest in the temple was to symbolically offer the prayers of the people by keeping incense at the altar of incense burning every morning and evening and all day. Prayer and incense are often associated with the Bible. The idea is that just as the pleasant aroma of incense rises to heaven, so do our prayers. So here before anything happens at the opening of the seventh seal, the prayers of God's people are rising up to God. Now we're seeing not the prayers of the people symbolically from the priests rising up from the temple. We are literally seeing the real prayers of the saints reaching the very temple in heaven. Now this is like a huge meteor being hurled to earth, causing another catastrophic earthquake. I find it interesting that we are now trying to develop meteoroid blood busters or whatever they are to destroy meteors as they come through space. We're going to miss this one. Fire from the altar in heaven and then thrown back to earth. The prayers of God's people come back to earth. There's a groundswell of judgment coming. Noises, thundering, lightning, and earthquakes. So in Revelation, we see God sealing those who trust him. He places his name. He places his seal on their foreheads to protect them from the judgments to come. This reminds us of the Israelites who were sealed with the blood of the Lamb 
and protected from the judgment that would be passing over that night. Think about it for a minute. These 144,000, whichever population of Jewish people they are, are protected by God. They're sealed. They're untouchable. No matter what happens in the world, they can't be touched. Imagine what that feels like to know that you're sealed and protected from a judgment that you know is coming, to realize it's not going to affect you. Because God himself has sealed you and set you apart. Can you imagine how incredible that assurance would be and how differently you'd live your lives today if you just knew that? Think how differently you would live if you walked around every day knowing you've been sealed by God himself. What would there be to worry about? Nothing could touch you. You'd be bulletproof. You'd be a superhero walking the planet. You don't have to imagine it because you are. When we accepted Jesus as our Savior, we were sealed by God with the promise of the Holy Spirit that on one day when redemption comes, we will be restored with God. The Holy Spirit, the scriptures tell us, is our down payment validation, verification that we've been sealed by God. We can walk through this earth with a seal that is even better than the Brad Boyer School of Swimming seal. Because God himself has sealed our hearts. 1 Corinthians 1.21 And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 1.12 So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Jesus said, I'm going away. Believe in me, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. You will be sealed. You can live this life knowing you're already eternal. You can live this life knowing that you can be safe and secure. No matter what happens in this world, God has his hand on you and he has sealed you. One of the ways that we celebrate the truth of being realized, of realizing that we've been sealed by God himself in a unilateral covenant. We have faith, he does everything else. We celebrate communion. See, communion is reserved for those who accepted Jesus as their Savior and have received the seal of the Holy Spirit. Every time we take communion, we remember whose we are and how we got there. Luke 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, this is the cup that's poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus has been waiting since the beginning of time and before that to celebrate with those he will save. He couldn't wait to suffer. He he couldn't wait to bring us into fellowship with God, to restore the broken relationship that we have by breaking his body and sharing his blood as our lamb, covering us with the promise, his seal, the Holy Spirit, sealed by his blood and then seeking the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
as you take communion today, I want you to really think about the fact that you are unilaterally sealed by God. You're already protected from the punishment of your sins. You're already victorious over death. You're already an eternal being. Your home's not here, it's in heaven. We're here on a mission to show people the way home. You've been redeemed through Christ. You didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. It's who God is. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you loved us when we didn't love you. I thank you that you made a covenant with all of us, even though we turn from you and run to other things. Thank you, God, that you forgive us and you bring us back home. I thank you, God, that you save a remnant who will hold on to your word and your truth and who will live for you at every opportunity. Fallen, mistaken, not perfect, but our hearts sold out to you. So God, as we take the communion today, would you just help us to spend a few moments at the altar or in our seats just remembering what it means to be assured of the seal, to be stamped by you as one of yours, to be a daughter of the King, to be a son of the God Most High. God, we thank you that we didn't do any of it. We just believed and you did everything else. We don't deserve it. We don't understand it, but we thank you for it. And it's in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus we pray.